Thank you, ladies. Great song. Great job. Great thought. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you. It's got a hard black cover. We'll be on page 559, Jeremiah chapter 5. Um, I'm sure many of you were looking forward to hearing Brother Gibbs. He wish, wishes he could be here. Unfortunately, he came down with COVID and is unable to be here. Uh, so you're stuck with me. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it is what it is. Everything in the Bible, of course, is both inspired and preserved by God for us through His providential care over the centuries. Uh, and though most of us find the New Testament uh, easier to understand and easier to apply, all of the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and all of the Bible has value to us that being said, there are certainly some places in the Bible that are more easily applicable, more easily understood, and more important to us today than other places are. And Lord willing, for quite some time, uh, I plan to talk about great texts, mountaintop texts in the Bible, in the Old Testament books of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and the New Testament Gospel of John. Last Sunday morning, we talked about why God placed hard sayings in the Bible. He put them there so people would repent and return to Him. <laughs> and we read some of the difficult things that God said through Jeremiah and talked about some of the difficult things that Jesus said. And we come to understand that God did not do that to belittle people or leave them wallowing in guilt. God's desire in all of it was so that people would repent and return and be close to him again. We saw how God, uh, Christ himself, spoke hard things to Nicodemus, told him that he needed to be born again. He did that so Nicodemus would be saved, even though Nicodemus did not want to hear that. We saw how Paul said difficult things to the believers in Corinth, calling them carnal and immature and all sorts of other things, and he did that also so they would repent and turn to God, and we saw, thankfully, how in 2 Corinthians, Paul made note of how they had received those hard things with a humble heart, and they sorrowed after a godly sort, which moved them to change, and fulfilled God's purpose for Paul speaking difficult things so that they would repent and return to God. And we challenged one another as we closed out to be humble hearers of the truth even things that are hard to hear, so that we can repent and maintain a close relationship with Jesus Christ. It's what he wants with each of us. This morning we return to the book of Jeremiah, the words and story of a tender-hearted, clear speaker of truth. There's not a thoughtful person here this morning who doesn't look around at the problems in our world and feel helpless to fix them. I mean, what can one person do to fix the wars in Israel or the Ukraine? To fix poverty and corrupt governments in Central America and Africa? To fix injustices in China and the pollution dumped on our globe by third world countries? I mean, have you ever really thought this through? I mean, they're worried about our plastic straws and in people in Indonesia, they throw their garbage into the river. There's not a thoughtful person among us who doesn't look at the problems in America and feel helpless to fix them. I mean, what can one person do to fix 
over 6 million illegal immigrants in the last three years over a 1,900-mile border? What can one person do to fix hundreds of thousands of babies murdered in their mother's womb? There's not a thoughtful person here who doesn't look around at the problems in American churches and feel helpless to fix them. I mean, what can one person do to fix the effects of theological liberalism and spiritual deadness in many of 380,000 pulpits? I mean, what can one person do to fix so much worldliness and lukewarmness in pews and chairs that listen to those dead and liberal pulpits? What can one person do? What can one person do in face of such large problems, so many issues, even problems in our own family that are beyond what we can do as an individual? I know many of you have heard this story, but it's one of my favorite stories, but it applies to our thought this morning. The story told about a large storm that washed thousands of starfish up on a beach in a place where the tide would never reach them again. Most people were just standing a long way away from the starfish and lamenting how bad the storm was and lamenting how bad the effects of the storm were. But there was a little boy walking among the starfish and he would pick them up one at a time and he would just throw them back in the ocean. The grown man came behind the little boy and he said, Son, can't you see all the starfish on the beach? No matter how many you throw back, you can never make a difference because there are so many of them. And the little boy just looked at the man and smiled as only a little boy might, and he picked up a starfish, and he threw it in the ocean, and he said it made a difference to that one. If you're able to stand where you stand this morning, please, in honor of the Word of God, tell my thought this morning is the power of one individual, the power of one individual. Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. And though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. Thank you, might be seated. Most of Jeremiah's ministry was done at a time when Jerusalem and Judah were away from God. Most of the people of Judah and Jerusalem, especially in the latter years of Jeremiah's ministry, they were not only away from God, they were actively antagonistic both toward Jeremiah and toward what he had to say. Now, during Jeremiah's ministry, there were a lot of people around, uh, men who called themselves prophets, one uh, who's mentioned, his name was Hananiah, he also spoke in God's name. But in God's name, men like Hananiah literally said the exact opposite of what Jeremiah was saying. By the way, the same thing goes on in America today. There are all kinds of places called churches with men and women standing behind things called pulpits or sitting on a stool, and they literally say the opposite of what you hear from this pulpit. Listen, the only way people in Jeremiah's day and today can really know the difference in what is true and what is false is to understand what God has written in the Bible. God has never contradicted himself. God has never changed. 
And understand that everything that's spoken today or in any day and age, if it was contrary to what was always written, that was how people would recognize what was true and false. Now much of what Jeremiah had to say was on the eve of Babylon crushing Judah in battle, burning anything nice in the city of Jerusalem, destroying Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, and taking those who were left alive captive 900 miles away to the city of Babylon. And our Creator is gracious and merciful and loving. He's always been that way. Some people wrongly think God just sort of became gracious and merciful and loving in the New Testament. No, God was always gracious, merciful, and loving. But all along, God was also holy and righteous and just. And because of that, there has always been consequences for sin. Now those consequences are most especially evident and most especially severe when people know the commandments of God but willfully and presumptuously refuse to do them or even worse, do the opposite. And so because God is holy and righteous and just, there were going to be severe consequences on Jerusalem for her continued willful defiance of God. Notice how Jeremiah is going to make clear to them God's fury and judgment that was coming in chapter 4 in verse 7. He says, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He's gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate. Thy cities should be laid waste without an inhabitant. That's pretty clear. Verse 16 in chapter 4, Make ye mention to the nations, Behold, publish against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and give out their voice against the cities of Judah. As keepers of a field are they against her round about, because she hath been rebellious against me, saith the Lord. Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reacheth into thine heart. Look at verse 22. For my people is foolish. They've not known me. They are sottish children. That means silly. They have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. Over and over through the book of Jeremiah, both before and after chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, God makes very clear that he is not happy with them and that there are severe consequences on their way. But because God, in addition to being holy and righteous and just, is also loving and kind and gracious, he gave these clear messages like we learned last week so that people would repent and return to him. And in our text, God is going to extend a different kind of invitation just to make sure we understand how clear and how bad Jerusalem had gotten. He invites them to thoroughly search Jerusalem to see if they can find even one man who was just and who sought the truth. Beginning of verse 5. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in the broad places thereof if you can find a man. If there be any that executeth judgment that seeketh the truth. We'll stop there. We'll get back to the end of that in a second. I mean, think about this, about what Jerusalem is. Jeremiah challenges them to go run around, seek, look in Jerusalem, and see if you can find any man who is just and seeks the truth. I mean, think about what Jerusalem was. It was a political head of the nation. 
It was where the kings were. It was where the judges were. It was where those who counseled the kings were. It was where those who were any of importance in the government whatsoever were. And God says, he says, listen, check everywhere you want to check in Jerusalem and see if there's even one man who would be just and seek the truth. But it wasn't just that Jerusalem was a political capital of Judah. It was also the spiritual capital. In the city of Jerusalem was the temple of Solomon that had been built about 400 years earlier. The high priest was in Jerusalem. All the chief priests who did everything of the most importance were in Jerusalem. Everybody that were scribes and anybody that did anything important in Judaism was there in Jerusalem. And God says, listen, you go to that city, you run to and fro, you look wherever you want, see if you can find even one man who is just, and who seeks the truth. And notice what he says if they can find one at the end of verse 5. He says, you find somebody like that, and I'll pardon it. God promises to pardon the whole city if there was even one man who was just and sought the truth. Now that may seem unusual to a lot of people, See, most people think that nations, or cities in this case, they're destroyed because of the wickedness of evil people. And the wickedness of evil people does bring destruction on cities and nations. But cities and nations are spared because of the righteousness of God's people. (laughs) For those of you who are more familiar with the Bible, you may be aware that God offered to spare the city of Sodom if there were 10 righteous people. Listen, there could have been 10,000 Sodomites in Sodom. And if there were 10 righteous people, God would have spared the city. By the way, the average person sitting in an American church pew today, you're lamenting all the wickedness in the country and all you hear about is wicked this and wicked that and understand that yes, there is a lot of wickedness in our country, but God is not going to destroy America if there are righteous people in America. By the way, that ought to give everyone hope. So what does the future for America hold? I don't know what the future for America holds, but I do know this. If there are a significant number of truly righteous people with faith in Christ, God will spare our country. By the way, I believe there are still some faithful, righteous, godly people in our country. And I think a lot of people in this room, you need to get your eyes off the wickedness. You run around, oh, woe with me, woe with me, it's so bad, so bad, how are we going to do it? Please be quiet. Listen, there's some good, faithful, godly people around still. That'll give us hope. See, the problem in Jerusalem was not that there weren't people who knew the commandments of God or believed Jehovah to be real and alive. The problem was not a bunch of atheists in Jerusalem. The problem was that the Jews said they believed God was alive, but they acted like God was not alive or real. And that's what verse 2 says. He says, and though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. I mean, there could have been a thousand sodomites, a thousand blatant hypocrites, a thousand atheists and scoffers, a thousand adulterers and drunkards. But if there had been one truly righteous man, one truly righteous man who sought justice and sought the truth, God says, I'll spare 
the city for the sake of that one. Listen, America's churches are not filled with people who walk away, uh, who, who, who would say, uh, there's no God. That's not who fills America's church pews. Uh, America's pews and chairs of churches, they're not filled with people who would say, no, Jesus isn't alive. They're not filled with people who would say, no, Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world. That's not what fills America's church pews and chairs. What fills churches all over America is this. People who say they believe these things and they walk away from a church and they act like God isn't real. They sit in the bar or their home drunk on Friday and Saturday night and walk into church on Sunday as if it didn't matter. They mistreat their spouse, ignore the Bible, use profanity in the workplace, and walk into the church on Sunday as if none of those mattered. Hey, God's alive and it matters. They have emotional affairs in the office, watch pornography in their phone. They're unkind to the people around them, and they walk into the church on Sunday as if there was nothing going on, as if God didn't care. Listen, it matters. And so I hope you understand, people claiming to believe but acting different, that is not something new to American culture in 2024. There have always been people like that. The question is not, have there always been people like that? The question is, is will we be people like that? God's invitation was simple. Find one person who is just and seeks the truth, and I'll pardon the whole city of Jerusalem. That is the power and effect that one individual can have with God. I don't know about you, it's hard for me to fathom how Jerusalem and its leadership could be so bankrupt that they couldn't even find one. I mean, here's the reality of it. Probably nobody looked. See, See, Jeremiah, by and large, his message was disrespected. And when Jeremiah said this, you you know, you had other prophets saying, oh, listen, everything's fine. You're the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is merciful. Don't listen to all that judgment stuff from Jeremiah. Don't listen to that stuff about a people coming from the north who are going to take all your cities. Don't listen to all that stuff. And the people, because that's what they wanted to hear, and because they were ignorant of the word of God, they're like, yeah, yeah. I would imagine Jeremiah looked. The Bible really doesn't say. But God ended up judging Jerusalem. See, my attention this morning is drawn to the power of one faithful righteous person in sparing the people around them. I know of adult children who have so willfully and presumptuously defied everything their parents lived and taught that I believe the only reason they're alive today is the prayers of one person. I know of families that have enough serious issues to divide them badly and permanently, but they're together because I believe one person has prayed and walked with God in such a way that family is still together. 
says the reason Jesus likens his disciples unto salt. The salt of righteousness stings the ungodly. But salt is also a preservative. And there are a lot of things that would be destroyed and decompose and fall away were it not for salt that was on them. Who knows how much sooner Jerusalem and Judea would have been destroyed were it not for Jeremiah. Let me ask you this morning, are you someone who's only here and only alive this morning because of the faithful righteousness of somebody who's prayed for you? Would you repent and return today? Are you someone who's decided that you will be the one who will stand in the gap so someone you love, someone in the circle of your life will be preserved from the judgment of God? Do you recognize just how important it is for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to actually live lives that are faithful in righteousness that might add weight and give merit to the words of our mouth? And so what I'd like to do this morning, just make some observations and applications about the power of one individual to make a difference. Please turn first in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Here's the first thing, number one. One man, Adam, brought all the human race down into sin. One man, Adam, brought all the human race down into sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore... As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So notice how sin got here, one man. Uh, that was Adam. <laughs> Verse 13, for under the law, uh, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So between Adam and Moses, even though there was no written commandment, sin was in the world. But it isn't imputed in the same way when the law is not pointing it out. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. In other words, people sinned and died between Adam and Moses, even though there was no written law because God gave man a conscience. And because God gave man a conscience, and because man sinned, there was death, even though people didn't sin in the same way Adam sinned. Listen, Adam's sin was particularly grievous. If you're somebody who thinks all sin is, is the same, you have a very shallow view of what sin is. All sin is the same in the sense that it all offends God. But all sin is not the same in the sense of the amount of consequence that it brings in our life or in eternity. Adam's sin was willful, presumptuous defiance of the one commandment from God, the God who walked with him in the cool of the day. And Adam willfully and deliberately says, God, I will disobey you so I can be with my wife. And though even not everybody from Adam to Moses sinned in the same manner that Adam did, both sin and death as a result of sin were there. But notice where sin came from. In the verse 12, by one man sin entered into the world. You know, many people look around at the mess of our world and the mess among mankind and they blame God. 
God is not the only force at work in our world. There is also a force for evil, and evil has never had any trouble finding a willing accomplice amongst mankind. It was man who brought the world where it is today. Listen, the very first accomplice to evil in our world was the first man, Adam. He had one clear command from God, don't eat from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. It couldn't have been any clearer, and Adam says, I'm not going to keep that one commandment. And Adam's sin has affected all of mankind since that fateful day. Please don't make the mistake of thinking your sins only affect you. Everyone, whether we like it or not, our sins affect a circle of people. Why is there adultery, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, and rape? One man, Adam, brought sin into our world. Why are there so many false religions, false teachers, false religious books, and watered-down versions of the Bible? One man, Adam, brought sin into our world. Why is there hatred, murder, violence, wars, and criminals from whom the general public needed protected? One man, Adam, brought sin into our world. Why is there brokenness in your family and mine, divorce, abuse, neglected children of all sorts and circumstances? One man, Adam, brought sin into our world. I wonder if Adam and Eve actually paused and considered the consequences of their choice that day. I wonder if they thought how this might impact their children or their grandchildren when they said, I want my will in this situation instead of the will of God in this situation. Did you ever, why you struggle with pride, selfishness, foolish lust and greed? One man, Adam, brought sin into our world. Did you ever wonder why you need to teach your children to tell the truth and share? They have a fallen nature from the womb. And every human being since the day of Adam has had that. Listen, you can educate someone. You can teach them good behavior, sophisticated manners, but understand they are still a wicked sinner in their heart. And in their heart, they are no better than the savage who ate their enemy for dinner yesterday. Say, I don't like you talking about my heart like that. Well, listen, God said that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know them? God said it's foolish to trust your heart. Don't think for a moment that the power of one individual is not only the power for great good. One individual can also have power for great evil. Listen, Adam was a believer who selfishly plunged the human race into sin. How do you suppose him and Eve felt when they got the news that Cain had killed their other son, Abel? Suppose they felt, wow, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Adolf Hitler's false ideas and charisma brought 15 million military deaths and 38 million civilian deaths. 
Muhammad's false ideas about Jesus of Nazareth has influenced 25% of the world. And there are 22 billion people today who believe that Jesus of Nazareth was just a prophet instead of the Son of God and God manifest in the flesh because of one person. Whether it's Karl Barth's false Christianity, Charles Darwin's errant view of creation, Karl Marx's twisted view of government, many single individuals in history have been at the point of the spear of bad things that affected millions of people. But the vast majority of human beings will not impact millions. Though every human life impacts others because even the shortest life leaves footprints somewhere. There are people here this morning and you could step up and talk about one person who hurt you as a child from whom the scar remains today. Many here could step forward this morning and speak about one person who spiritually misled you and today you still struggle from that deception. Many this morning could stand up and speak, speak about one person who was a peer when you were a child or a peer when you were a teen or a peer when you were a young adult and that one person has impacted you negatively for years and years and years. One individual always has power, but it's not just power for good. And it's not just that one man, Adam, brought all the human race down in sin. Here's number two. One man, Jesus, paid the price for sin and opened the door to eternal life. Let's continue in Romans chapter 5. Verse 15 says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, that's Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. Notice the contrast. Remember, he told us the contrast uh, was coming. Uh, at the end of verse 14, it says that Adam, it says who is the figure of him that was to come. Adam was just a picture, a shadow, a, a type of one individual's impact. And the type, the figure of which he was picturing in that regard was Jesus, the one man who paid for our offenses. Verse 16, and not as it was by that one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace of the, and, and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinner, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So you see the contrast here. The power of one man, one individual, Adam, for great evil to bring so much sin and woe and pain in mankind and the power of one, one individual, Jesus Christ, who by virtue of a sinless life, by virtue of a sacrificial shedding of his blood and death on the cross and by virtue of his powerful resurrection from the dead bodily after three days, that one individual made it all different. It's just not fair that Adam's choice impacted every human being like that. You know, it's also not fair that one individual could die for the sins of the world and make grace available to everyone. So it's not fair that Adam's offense could bring death to every individual. You know, it's also not fair that one individual named Jesus could make the gift of righteousness available to every individual. Though all of mankind fell in Adam, 
Thanks be to God, the free gift of salvation is made available to everyone through the sacrifice and obedience of one individual. Do you see that in verse 19? For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The power of one. Just like one individual can impact many for bad, one individual can impact many for good, for God, and for things that matter in eternity. Have you ever really thought about some of the individuals mentioned in the Bible who not only impacted their generation for good, but impact us still today? One, one individual. How about the impact of Abraham deciding to leave Ur of Chaldees by faith for a land he'd never seen? How about the impact of David as a teenager deciding at that point to be a man after God's own heart? How about the impact of Peter and John and Paul who gave their whole life both to know and make Jesus known? How about the impact of a godly mother and grandmother to raise somebody like Timothy? Who though they grew up, they, listen, they were in Leicester and Derby. Uh, Timothy as a child uh, or, or as a young teenager, along with his mother and grandmother, they were there when they stoned Paul to death. And yet when Paul came back a little while later, maybe a year or two later, to, on his second missionary journey, and Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, his mother and grandma said, go. What would you say? The impact for good of one mom. <laughs> Think about the impact of the boy who gave his lunch to Jesus to feed 5,000. The impact of an unnamed servant girl who said to Naaman the leper, hey, there's a prophet in Israel. How about the impact of Stephen, who though he's being stoned to death, instead of cursing those who were doing him wrong, who had lied about him and mistreated him, said, Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. The impact for good of one individual. Think about the impact of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, or Abraham Lincoln on our country. Think about the impact of King James, Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, or D.L. Moody on Christianity. Think about the impact in more recent years of James Dobson or Billy Graham on our culture. On and on and on could go the list of one individuals who impacted history and Christianity and culture for good. But hear me this morning. The vast majority of human beings will not impact people, millions of people for good. Our footprint was never supposed to be that big. There are a lot of people here this morning, and you could stand up and say, you know what, it was a parent or grandparent or family member who influenced and impacted you in a way for good that, that changed your life. Many could step forward and talk about a coach, a school teacher, a friend, someone in your workplace who impacted and influenced you for good in a way that shaped your whole life. One person. Many could step forward and talk about a pastor, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a friend in the Lord's church who influenced you in the faith and impacted you in, in, in some way. It has literally shaped your life. And very few are called and gifted to change the world. But we're all called and commanded to be a light in the circle of our life. You know, I can handle my marriage in such a way 
that Sharon Miller rises higher and goes farther in life because she was married to me. Brother, I'd be ashamed of myself if your testimony is you've been a weight around your wife's neck your whole marriage. Means that I, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a father-in-law, I can live and pray and walk in such a way that everybody in the circle of my life goes farther because of my life. Listen, there's people all over this room, and the opposite is true. You know what? Who's being impacted by you here? Who's here tomorrow? Who's here this morning because of you? Who, by virtue of your prayers, your effort, your calls, your investment in their life, who's here today? Don't you think there's something wrong? If each of us don't have a little circle of people around us that we've made better in the faith. Listen, everyone here can either be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. Now, I get it. There's no one like Jesus. He is the one individual who can give eternal life and forgiveness and salvation and purpose to life. There's only one like him. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is none like he. It is he who stands in glory and everybody in heaven falls down upon their face and says, worthy is a land that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. There is none like he. But in our lives, we need to be the one. By the way, that starts with you getting saved. And if you're here and you're not yet saved, uh, listen, I plead with you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. Humble yourself. Call upon the name of the Lord. Confess yourself a guilty sinner. Admit that you are hopeless to stand before a thrice holy God and get entrance into a city where there is no, uh, there is no death and no cancer and no abuse and no injustice. The only merit that anyone will have to enter that city is the merit of Christ. And if you have been saved, is all you do is lament the terrible effects of Adam's choice? I feel bad for people who sit in churches and every week they come and they listen to a preacher lament about how bad everything is. Listen, you can get that on the news. Fox News. They're not sitting there hour after hour talking about how good things are going in America. Listen, there is a free gift of salvation Christ made available by grace of sinners because one individual, one man, Jesus, made it right, which gets us to our last thing, and very briefly, which I know you love for me to say that, one faithful witness can be the difference in eternal life and eternal condemnation. Have you ever thought about this? It doesn't take a famous witness to make a difference. It takes a faithful witness. You know, one of the things I don't like, I've got a big list of things I don't like, but one of the things I don't like 
about what Christianity does is someone famous gets saved and immediately they put them in front of everybody to give their testimony. You know, that's terrible because that person hasn't had time to mature enough in their faith to be put in that kind of scrutiny. See, because it's not a famous witness that makes the difference, it's a faithful witness that makes a difference. See, most of the people in my life who made the biggest difference, they weren't famous people. They were faithful people. I thought about a man named Jason Hall who, when I was in college, sold me a Bible and challenged me to read it for myself. And that put me on a path to where eventually I would hear about Jesus and get saved. I thought about my dad, overcome growing up in a home with a violent alcoholic father. Violent alcoholic father. And he never once beat me or my mom. By the way, that's overcoming. I never saw him drunk. The only time I ever saw him drink was when he drank with me when I was a college student because he just wanted to please his proud, arrogant son. When my dad passed, I wondered how much more difficult my life in ministry would be. Because my dad would pray for an hour on his knees every night. Hey, hey, listen, people that are being prayed for like that, you don't emerge the same when that stops. My dad never spoke in public. He was not a good teacher. He was just a mellow dude, actually. I, I would describe my mom as being more aggressive, but she's listening. One man's impact, not with public ministry, private prayer. I thought about people who took me under their wing when I first got saved. In most cases, they didn't do anything more than make me feel welcome. You know, 40 years ago when I got saved, I could not have been any more different from the people who were coming to church all the time. <laughs> the, the different, it's just a vast chasm. And yet, they just loved me and were patient with me and made me feel welcome. You know, if God was willing to spare Jerusalem, if there was one believer who lived justly and sought truth, what would he do with you? Maybe instead of lamenting the wickedness of America, we should be focused on living righteously as believers so God would spare a country. Maybe instead of lamenting the deadness and shallowness of much of American Christianity, we should be focused on living righteously as believers so God would spare our churches. Maybe instead of lamenting the brokenness of our family and rejection of God's way by some in our family, we should be focused on living righteously so that God would spare and mend our family. I don't know who you are this morning. There are probably some people here, and you are literally only alive because some righteous person has prayed for you and been that one. And I'm talking to lots of other people. You're discouraged in the way, and you feel like, wow, these problems are so big, there's nothing I can do. Here's what you do. You get one starfish, and you make a difference in that one. 
Will you decide to be a believer who lives a righteous, faithful life? Not just for Christ's sake, but how about for the sake of those who are in the circle of your life? Amen? If you quietly stand.